Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 together. It is really great to be back. Um, I'm very thankful. Thank you for so many who texted and called and prayed. Um, We felt the love of both of the body and of Christ uh, over this time. Glad to be back. Uh, I want to give you a little, a little peek into what it was like. I don't know if any of you have had to take the test um, at the beginning. I remember hearing about it, like they're taking this swab and shoving it down all the way to the back of your brain. Um, it does kind of feel like that. Like this isn't me, but I've seen a couple different reactions. This is one of them. Um, even kids the same way. They freak out when this kind of stuff happens. You got you to gotta get the swab though, make sure you understand. Uh, I don't think this next picture looks like me, but I think it might have been lo- what I looked like when it happened. Um, it's pretty intense getting up there. Like, like it just, I'd like to make, make you like, like tickle and angry and cry and all that stuff all together. Um, but when we, uh, we, we took the test together, Kristen and I did, and uh, when they came back, there they are. Um, mine's on the left, Kristen's on the right. Don't get any ideas, guys. This is, in fact, a COVID test, Okay. <laughs> I know what the married people in here thought about that, all right? This is a COVID test. No announcements here today. Um, but so, strangely, uh, this meant that Chris and I had to separate. Uh, I made a little makeshift spot in my room. There it was, my college uh, quilt laid out in my study on the airbed. Uh, felt like I was back batching it again. Uh, so I spent the time away from family in that way. Um, but if you remember, this happened right before Thanksgiving, which... I am so thankful. I was just beginning to lose my scent and my taste, so we did get to have some Thanksgiving. You can see it's on a black card table. My sister who lives with us, uh, we were off sequestered to the side while the rest of the family ate over there. Uh, And thankfully, as far as we know, um, we didn't have any transmission. But that meant that the kids had to stay home throughout the week, you know, stay away and isolate to make sure they didn't get it or carry it, which meant the, the house was a little bit louder. So I took a picture of myself trying to, trying to deal with this, and this is what it kind of looked like as I was studying away, trying to make sure I could focus in and still prepare for this coming week. So thank you for the prayers, and uh, we're very thankful that God has been gracious to, to keep things at a minimum and um, hopefully back somewhat healthy and ready to go. Before I begin, I also want to uh, just thank Jordan. I don't even know where he is right now. Uh, he's probably doing something. What, oh, right there. Thanks, brother. Uh, Jordan, he's everywhere, I know that, but like last week he was fulfilling the preaching role. Um, we talked about it as a possibility early in the week, um, and then by the end of the week he knew he was going to have to preach. So um, I'm so thankful uh, we have good brothers who are able to step in and preach the word faithfully. That is a gift to us. I hope you understand that. It is a true gift that we want to steward well. So Jordan, thank you for preaching Christ, brother. I got to hear it, enjoyed that message of, of Advent, of Christ, who's really the answer to all of our hopes and fears. And so I'd call us to remember this as we continue to enjoy all the lights and the Christmas cheer and all the other things that go on, 
But we remember rightly that this is the truth, that our Savior came so that we might know the King and so that we might submit to him joyfully and find true salvation in Christ. Um, I also had many different men after this time uh, via text, via email and calls approach me and say, hey, if you ever need someone to fill in again to, to preach, uh, we're willing and able to kind of do something like that. Uh, again, that's a, just a reminder of the good gift that God has given to uh, our body to be able to preach the word faithfully. And we're going to be following up with that and actually doing some teaching and equipping so that we will be prepared. Because if you haven't stayed around Cornerstone very long, you'll eventually know people come and they join and then they go. It's just a total normal flow for us. And so what we want to see is men, especially leading households and women as well, who can understand the scriptures and use it to teach and disciple and evangelize the world around us. And so we're excited about that task. And we realize even through these kind of times that God has been gracious to us. Okay, let's look at Ecclesiastes together. As you look in chapter 7 there, it was three weeks ago that I actually preached the last section, which is the first half of Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, let me just catch us up a little bit. So if you want to just pay attention, I'm going to try to conduct, like, take that whole sermon and bring it down into a paragraph, roughly. Uh, the passage in the first half of chapter 7 was dominated, if you remember this, by sorrow and death and all this darkness and mourning and sobriety really teaching us to see the whole of a person's life rather than just living for the moment, which seems to be the mantra of so much of our culture. If I could sum it up, I'd say that he's telling us, don't run from difficulty, but instead seek to understand that difficulty so that you might live wisely and actually preserve your life. Times of adversity, difficult times, are parts of God, are part of God's uh, timeline and design for humanity. Remember in Ecclesiastes 3.1, he said there's a time for everything. And thus we recognize even for adversity or for the difficult times or for mourning. Thus to try to escape adversity is, is downright foolhardy. And, and it's a denial of the reality that we actually live in. Thus to try to escape is really foolish. God is our grand designer, the creator, the sustainer, the judge, and the almighty sovereign one over all of creation. Not just right now, for all eternity. For every different time there ever has been, he's over it. He's before it. He's after it. And so we recognize to, to push against that kind of an almighty creator is utterly foolish. And so our takeaway was really that a wise person will embrace the harsh realities of life as a part of God's design. Living for the moment, then, is really utterly foolish. Even though we hear our culture tell us all the time, live for the moment, you know, YOLO, just get out there and do what you want to right now, get it done. This is the only time you got, let's, let's live it up for it. A wise person will live before the God of ultimate eternity and reality. So this is where we want to pick up today, in verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. And I will warn you, it's not very promising or very satisfying what he's about to say. It's going to sound a little bit rough. In fact, it seems as though after we get to the end, we're going to have more reason to kind of echo what he's been saying from the beginning. Hevel, vanity. This is absurd. It seems as though this is meaningless. It's not a new thing. But I'm telling you this time, when we get to this, the culprit for this Hevel may surprise you. 
So let me read from Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 29. This is God's word. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from, them bo- from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you asking for your grace. Would you use me? Would you use our thoughts and meditations? Would you use your word this morning to speak to us? Would we not decide on our own to live the way that we want to, but rather, Lord, would we hear your word so clearly and would we submit to you in love and joy? I pray that you would help us, therefore, to have humble hearts that are ready to receive and that you would speak to your people today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, how many of you here, you don't have to put your hands up, would consider yourselves, at least maybe when you're children, rebels? I mean, as opposed to maybe the rest of us are like, we're more of the rule followers. Um, probably know yourself to be on one side or the other, at least somewhat. Maybe there's a little bit of a crossover once in a while. I can remember when I was uh, in like the 11th or 12th grade, I can't exactly remember what year it was, but I can remember a, a Christian college came to our school and they were promoting. They're kind of telling us all the reasons why we should go to their school. And whenever this happened, we loved it because they would bring all the free stuff, Right. Sometimes they would throw like, you know, uh, like t-shirts out into the crowd with their name on it. Or of course, sometimes you had the Frisbees that had their name on it. But every, every college that came through always had lots and lots of free pens. And the pens, of course, have their logo on it and stuff to remember. Maybe it's a little catchy phrase or something like that. But they always had free pens. 
Uh, I remember like, like, they would just have a table and they'd have their stuff on it and then they'd have like just hundreds of free pens sitting there. And they'd always invite people to please come to see the table and grab a pen. And I can remember my friends and I kind of kept up uh, a way to see if we get more and more of these pens and continue to visit these tables. And I think I went a little across the line one time. Uh, I had like, like 15 or 20 of these things. I had big pockets. You remember those cargo pockets, right? From cargo pants. I, I could fit those in nicely. Um, you know, but I got these, went back to class. And I can remember that day, um, I was going to government class, and if you, if you don't know me, even as I stand up here right now, I'm not a person who can sit still very long, and I, you, I have a standing desk in my office, uh, I'm constantly working on, my, uh, my wife who's a teacher says, you're a kinesthetic learner, which means I'm actively engaged in all that I do so that I can learn, whether that's standing or lifting or clicking, you know, something like that. Here I was in class, taking notes, minding my own business. I didn't realize it, but I was just clicking away, clicking away, taking notes, clicking away. And my government teacher came over, didn't say a word to me, came over to me and went, and he walks over to his desk and he, and he puts it down on the desk, which is fine because, you know, <laughs> I still have at least 14 pens in my pocket. So I pulled out the other pen and uh, started taking notes. I wasn't trying to be rebellious. I was trying to take notes. But I did kind of lose track of thought and started clicking again. Comes over again and he goes, and he walks back over to his desk and puts it on there. So he's got two of my pens now. But at this point, I realized it was going to be fun. You know, I realized what was going on. And everyone else in my class understood what was going on. So I pulled out the other one and started taking notes. I took notes. But again, I started clicking, started clicking. Now this time, he's really upset. He comes over, he still doesn't say anything. He's still like teaching. Like his, his, uh, his resolution to keep on teaching is excellent. But he comes over and just stares me down and pulls it out. And then he does the long walk over his desk, like still giving me the desk stare. As he does so, because all my, all my classmates knew what was going on, I extend the hand miraculously. I do a, a swan dive into my pocket and I triumphantly bring out another pen. And I go like this, and he goes, principal's office. <laughs> what I thought was a fun game, uh, I was just trying to take notes. Um, he thought was worthy of sending to the principal's office for rebellion. Um, that was not my intention, but it certainly was the last straw for him. So, uh, you know, you can probably answer your own to the question if you've been a rebel or maybe a, a rule follower, uh, or probably a little of both once in a while. But there are many of you in here who are rebels, and then there's also others in you here that are rule followers. Like, you just thrive on following the rules. Like, you understand that's the way it's supposed to work. And people like me annoy you. You're like, if that kid would just sit still, we could learn in this class. Like, you're like, this is how the world works. Follow the rules and we get stuff done. This is the right way to do things. Can't be blatantly disregarding the rules all the time. People are like uh, me are kind of a menace to a peaceful classroom. And sometimes they're just like, that kid is just all around dumb. Why would he not just sit still? He's going to get sent to the principal's office. Now, I know that not everyone neatly falls into one or the other of those two categories, but most of us understand what I'm talking about when we bring this up. Some of us struggle with the desire to just do blatant sin, things that we know are wrong, things that are wicked, things that are unwise, and we know it. But we struggle with that pull that makes us want to do those things. Some of us struggle with escapism. 
whether it's food, whether it's eating and whether it's drinking, whether it's sex or entertainment or materialism, we will run to those specific blatant sins. We talked about this tendency in the first half of chapter 7. Remember this? That idea of the house of mirth, the idea of looking to all these other things that we know are not actually going to satisfy our souls. But there's another category of people that we should really take time to consider. Those of us who know the unrighteous practices are evil. They're wrong and they're foolish. They don't please God. They're against the rules and they clearly lead to all kinds of trouble, whether it's for other people or yourself. And our assumptions about religion, or if you're joining us today, you've known something about religion. Our assumptions about religion or living a godly life encourage us to repeat these prohibitions, these things are proclaim, these prohibitions against foolishness and wickedness. These are the rules, right? I mean, we get this pretty crystal clear. Foolishness, wickedness, bad. Um, righteousness, wisdom, good. We understand that. And we rightly hear the Bible when it calls us to live wisely and to pursue righteous living because it will bring blessing and long life and true happiness. The person who doesn't click the free college pen over and over and over again stays in class and learns and is blessed. Listen to the law and what it says about this. Not about the clicking pens, but the idea of following commandments. Exodus 20.12 says this, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Or Deuteronomy 4.10 Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commands, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This happens all the way throughout the Pentateuch, especially in Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. He says it in Deuteronomy 5.33, 6.2, 11.9, 25.15, and 32.47. He just over and over this idea of obedience brings a long life. It's not only in the law, though. We hear it in the Proverbs. This is probably where you're even thinking about it. Listen to Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. It's pretty good. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 4.10, hear my son and accept my words, the years of your life, that your years of your life may be many. Now we know that when you live by the Lord's commands, when you obey, we understand that we will be blessed. And those that disobey God and do not be faithful to him will be cursed. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 28 talks about. Israel stands there on the edge of the promised land and they're faced with the choice, are you going to be faithful or are you going to be unfaithful? Are you going to obey? Because if you obey, you will be blessed. It's the whole chapter. It's unbelievable. And the other side is if you're going to not be faithful, if you're going to commit sin, if you're going to whore after other gods, you will be cursed. We know this language. We understand it. And it seems pretty straightforward to us. But our writer here in this wisdom literature, Kohelet, the one who calls together, the preacher, the teacher who is coming to bring people together to hear wisdom, he isn't willing to simply take that for what it's worth. Not at face value, because remember what he's trying to do in this book. He's trying to really, truly wrestle with what happens in real life. 
He's got to deal with all the incongruencies and the struggles, the things that don't seem to make sense. He wants to talk to people who know that life doesn't always turn out just like they thought it was supposed to. And that's where we find ourselves today in this text. It's a place where wisdom and knowledge and even right living seem elusive. Like he can't get what he's expecting to get out of the life he's supposed to be leading, even according to the Bible. I've entitled today's sermon, The Failure of Righteousness and Wisdom. That's a wild title. The Failure of Righteousness and Wisdom. Today, the culprit uh, of our disappointment is not just our mirth or our laughter or our escapism, but rather, it's virtue. It's the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and righteousness. Listen to verse 13 and 14. He says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, we covered this verse last time, but it's a really important starting point for us here today. He says that when we look at things, sometimes they look terrible. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they are terrible. You can probably recount your own lives, things that are really difficult, things that don't turn out the way that you think they should. Sometimes they look like they don't add up properly and as though they are really quite crooked, according to him. But for us to say that God is somehow out of control, it's just completely insane. It's not what the Bible says. He's not out of control. It's to defame him. God isn't at the mercy of some other higher power, some other set of rules that somehow govern him. I think we kind of think this sometimes. Like somehow God made this universal justice system that's somehow bigger than he is? No, 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 no. He doesn't live and abide by some universal rule. He is the universal rule. This is our king. This is this God. He is the one who made the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. He goes on here to illustrate what it means by these seeming discrepancies. Look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What in the world? This is not the way it's supposed to go. We just recounted all this stuff in the law and the Proverbs that showed us that A plus B always equals C. If you do the right things, you get blessing. If you do the wrong things, you get cursing. But he's pointing out so clearly here that that just doesn't seem to be true when he goes through life. Wicked people somehow prolong their life. And those that do what's right, it seems as though they live a, dare, a very difficult life, one that perishes in their righteousness. It just doesn't seem to add up. At this point, we should actually clearly see or remember at least the parallels with Job. Or Job? The question that should be burning in all of us when we're reading the book of Job is, is Job right? Did he do the right things? Is he in the right? Because if you remember what he says, it's constantly on his lips as well. Let me listen, listen to Job 13, 15. He says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. We know that part, right? But listen to what he says next. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Really? Wow. Job 27, 1, 2, and 6. Listen to this. 
And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Wow. I mean, Job will not let go of his righteousness. He knew the character and the promises of God, and he had not yet learned the lesson, though, that he would learn when he stood before the Almighty Creator. It seems as though, I don't know if this is exactly right, but it seems as though Kohelet, our writer here of of Ecclesiastes, has read the book of Job, because he read the ending. He understands. He knows the part in Job 40, when God says to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and make you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? This is God speaking. Will you put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Who do you think you are? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Kohelet knows better. He knows that God isn't bound to our ideas of justice and what it's supposed to look like in balance within the universe. He isn't subject to the rules of the universe. He is the ruler of the universe. And our writer here understands this. He's seen all the things in his vain life. And when he says vain, of course, we're talking about that idea of a shortened uh, life that's like vapor. Mere breath is just gone. He's not saying that it's empty and worthless. He's saying that it's so quick, like a fleeting fog cloud that goes over the horizon. So in this writer's short life that's fleeting, Sometimes he sees the righteous and watches them die deaths that really belong to wicked people. And he watches wicked people and they do their wickedness and they somehow prolong their life. And it seems as though they're blessed. And this frustrates him to no end. And from this observation, he gives us a warning. We've come to the point that he is trying to make here. In verse 16 through 18, he says this, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, the warning here is shocking, frankly. I mean, it's crazy. It's it's, it's so problematic. I mean, what he's saying here, if, if you've been reading along, Uh, week by week and reading the book of Ecclesiastes like I've encouraged you to do, this section is like a real head-scratcher. Like, what is he really saying? I mean, it was for me. I mean, I was pacing my study back and forth. You can tell I was clicking a pen and pacing nonstop, trying to figure out what he is actually teaching here. Um, is, Is he really saying, don't be too holy? Is he really saying, don't pray too much? Uh, Don't go to church too often? Don't give too much money to help support the Great Commission. Is that really what he's saying here? Don't be too righteous. Don't too, do too much good stuff. Everything in like some sort of moderation, right? Is, is, is that really what he is telling us to do? It's tempting to think that this is what he's saying, as if we finally got to the place in the Bible that gave us an excuse that we didn't have to be like Paul, like just working and, and disciplining himself after righteousness and going after it like a runner. We finally came to the place, it's like, okay, you're just a little, little over the top because you were an apostle. I'm just like a regular person. I, I follow Ecclesiastes 7, like everything in moderation, not too much holiness. I can't be too righteous. Like, 
is, is, that, is that what we're seeing here? Is that what he's really bringing out? Um, if you come up with an interpretation that seems to go against what the rest of the scriptures say, your, your antenna should go up. You should be like, uh, maybe I don't understand this properly. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to pray about this. Maybe I need to continue to look at Scripture. Maybe I need to talk to other believers about the interpretation of the Scripture. That's crazy. That'd be like doing one another spiritual good. Yeah, you should do that. This is a right way for us to interact with this. When we don't understand, let us talk and pray and work and think. Don't immediately think, well, I'm off the hook. I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want to. He's speaking to those of us here not like what we think is going on. The author of Ecclesiastes is not telling us to only be a little righteous and be a little wicked. In verse 16, he is pulling back the curtain on those of us who may or may not know it, but we think that we can somehow predict the theological future based on our actions of righteousness and wisdom by our good deeds by the promises that we take so seriously that God has given to us that we've turned it into a way to predict the future. If I do this, then this is what happens. If I do this, then this is what happens. Obviously, I understand that. He gave me the rules. I believe what God said. And so if I do this, I know I'm going to get this over here. He's looking at us, those that are rule followers, that so much like the structure that he's given to us and that we so much trust the structure of righteousness and wisdom instead of trusting God. There can be this call or feel that if we would just do that, we're doing the right thing. He's speaking to those of us, of those of us who are not blatant rebels, not foolish people, not people who are like just both hands into all the wickedness they can get. He speaks to us that know the law, those of us who know wisdom, those of us who understand the foolishness of sin and have taken these things seriously, even down to the way that we live our lives. We are ethical, moral people. We've chosen to do the right things. He speaks to those of us who have read our Bibles, who have tried to follow the rules, who have done all these right things. And what he's really getting at is the temptation for us rule followers to trust the rule-following process as though it is a formula. As though the thing that blesses us is the overarching justice of the universe, not the personal, loving, sovereign Lord of all creation. Who, who, who are we worshiping? Justice? Some big overarching scheme of things that's bigger than God? He's showing us that that can often be, whether we mean to or not, how we operate, how we slide into this. Instead of worshiping God, we worship a process, not true righteousness and holiness. Doesn't Jesus kind of highlight this problem? In Matthew 5.20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I don't know if you know about the Pharisees and the scribes, but their righteousness, like the good stuff that they did, was immense. I mean, it would put us all to shame. They were really good at keeping the law. They were so religious about it. And he says, even that is not enough. In verse 17, then, he goes on. He states the obvious. Yes, guys, of course, I'm not saying that you should be wicked, 
don't be too wicked or a fool, that truly could bring you to an early death. But in verse 16, he is, he is saying, when he asks that rhetorical question, why should you destroy yourself? He's not necessarily saying destroy as far as like die that day. He's talking about, in a way, by going after it over and over, you will find disappointment, destruction to your worldview and the way that you think it's supposed to go because it can't answer what God alone can answer. It will destroy you then. And from what I'm seeing here, what he's telling us is right. And so far from telling us sin uh, to sin and do good in moderation, is that what he's really telling us to do? No. He's warning us against a measured, calculated trust of the things that somehow are supposed to give us the life that we want, doing righteousness or gaining wisdom. It's like he's saying, guys, your religion doesn't save you. It's not going to help you on the final day. It's not enough. It's like he's saying, your wise choices, they don't always bring the consequences that you think they're supposed to. doesn't always give you long life. Your ability to keep the rules doesn't guarantee you a life of happiness and blessing that you think it's supposed to. Your dogged pursuit of wisdom and holy knowledge and doing the right things won't make you happy. So stop thinking that it will. Those things are things. There is only one who can make us truly happy. In verse 18, he simply then kind of sums this up and he's like, he's saying, what I just said in verse 16 and 17 is true and it's worth listening to. Take a look at it here. It's like he's looking at it and saying, okay, guys, it is good that you should hold on to this first thing in verse 16 and then uh, and from that, verse 17, withhold not your hand. Like hold on to these two pieces that I've told you. Don't be overly righteous like we just talked about and don't be overly wicked or a fool. He's holding us to this and saying, don't do that. But rather for the one who fears God, uh, sorry, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Listen to what, he's, what, I, what I've said and don't let go of it. It's going to bless you even though if you can't see it. And that last phrase is really important what he said here, talking about the one who fears God. We've heard this before. We've actually seen it several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We know where the rest of the book is going as well. For now, I just want you to recognize, he slips this in here. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of those situations properly. Now, because of time, I'm going to move on. Let's look at verse 19 through 24 together. He reiterates his point, but does so by propping up some really important reminders. He's told us some stuff here that's so far shocking. But as we see here in verse 19 and 20, it'll bring us back a little. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, this is pretty straightforward, and we believe both of these things to be true, right? Wisdom in the hands of wise are a very, is a very good thing. In fact, it's very strong. The way he talks about it here, he says, wisdom in the hand of someone who is strong is actually strong, I'm sorry, in someone who is wise, is stronger than 10 politicians with all their resources and authority and ability to do all these different things. He's just basically saying, wisdom is good. I want to reiterate that, he's trying to say. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not. Even though I've told you, you can't somehow find her. Don't be overly wise. He's saying wisdom is right and good. Also, he highlights our need to remember that all men, even the most righteous ones, have sinned. They are not perfect. 
Even the poet from the Enlightenment, if you know Alexander Pope, he knew this. He's the one that said, to err is human. He wants to make sure we are hearing him correctly. He's still advocating for wisdom, but he's balancing this wisdom righteousness with the realities that each of us face. We and all of our fellow human beings are sinful. He goes on. Let's look in verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, and I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? In verses 21 and 22, he gives us some very practical advice in what is already he's been talking about here. He's helping us live as though, as those who should not hold ourselves to, and others to complete or perfect compliance to the law. He's recognizing that we, as even righteous ones who pursue these things, still fail. When you hear someone bring an accusation against you, don't overreact. It's probably true in some way. Not only that, maybe it's not true, still don't overreact because you know yourself that you also have erred and cursed others. It's better, though, to be patient and consider that you or they may be wrong. Either way, have patience and be willing to grow, knowing that you are human. Strange enough, uh, I gave you that first little quote from Alexander Pope to err as human, but it's not the rest. He says something else. To err is human, to forgive divine. Even unbelievers get it right sometimes, don't we? Um, even sinful man here understands. Treat yourselves and others as sinners in need of patience and forgiveness. But he goes on from righteousness to wisdom in verse 23 and 24. Not only does man struggle with righteousness, as we've seen here, living in perfect compliance to the law, but he is limited when it comes to the idea and all the boundaries of wisdom. So he's kind of talked about righteousness. Now he's going to start talking about wisdom. Up to this point, we, we have kind of understood some of the assumptions that he has made about sinfulness, about our lack of ability to be perfectly righteous, even though we go, should and rightly go after it. But the rest of the chapter here in chapter 7, he is going to show us the problem of pursuing wisdom in its entirety. Let me read this starting here uh, in, uh, in verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it, find it out? Uh-oh. This is like the wisdom guy. This is Kohelet. This is the guy that's called us together to tell us all wisdom. And what does he say? Uh, I will be wise. In other words, he's committing himself to the process of understanding and being wise. And what does he say? Oh my goodness. When he tries to figure these things out, when he tries to live by wisdom, when he tries to get wisdom and do all that he's supposed to, somehow he can't find it all out. He says, it was far from me. Then he says something about the past, the history. That which has been is far off and deep very deep. Who can find it out? I mean, what a statement of humility compared to the way that some of us think about history 
and summing up all the generations and all their issues as though somehow we understood what it was like back then. Rather, he says, it's beyond finding out. It's deep, very, very deep. Instead of saying, here's my take on what everyone else did in history, he says, history is far off. It is way too big for me. How can anyone find it out? We weren't there. We didn't live it. Which brings us to our last section then. Verse 25, he starts this way. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Now, this is a really good start. He's kind of given us the starting blocks of the way he's going to go after this. I'm going to go after this wisdom thing. He recognizes that he is going to have to work and put in all his efforts, all his strengths, all his talents, all his wisdom, everything that he has that God has given to him to understand wisdom. I mean, he's continuing to work at the meaning of the universe. We've seen him talk about this from the very beginning of the book. He's trying to understand why the cosmos is as it is. And by the way, he even knows that folly or foolishness is wicked. He understands that part. He has the right worldview in that way. And as another observation, he says, it's downright stupid. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's, it's madness. So he starts out in the good way, but then he continues on to start talking about pursuing wisdom with all his might. Verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, we all ought to immediately bristle at this statement, right? Well, understand here, like he's pretty sexist, just like only women ever have this kind of an issue. They're the only ones that ever do this kind of stuff. Why would he do this here? It seems as though what he's doing is inappropriate. Why wouldn't he say women and men who act like wicked prostitutes luring people in? Why would he only point women out here? Well, I want to remind you that we're in wisdom literature. That should begin to help you. But remember that oftentimes we're personifying things that are broader and using them to help us understand what's really at the heart of something. In Hebrew, this is not as simple as what we might think either. He is going to use an article in front of woman. It's not just a woman. It's not just any woman. We're not just talking about women or females in general here. He is talking about the woman. The reason that's important is if you have read Old Testament literature, if you have read wisdom literature, you know that others have brought this idea up as well. Why wouldn't he say, again, women and men? Well, it may be that there's something else going on here. He's talking about the woman. And again, I don't have time to go like a full lesson here, but if you were to read the book of Proverbs, you're going to see there's a constant contrast. You're going to see, and it's not between seductive women and wise men. It's not between the, the bad girls and the good boys. That's never in the book of Proverbs. It's between wisdom and folly. And if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, it's actually not about a woman and a man. It's about a woman and a woman. He looks to woman folly and to woman wisdom. He's not pointing out the fact that females somehow have this terrible curse upon man. That's the meaning of the whole universe. He's trying to help us talk about folly 
foolishness the right way. There's probably no clearer picture of woman wisdom than what we'd find in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of wisdom. There's probably no clearer picture of woman folly, though, than Proverbs 9. Listen to this. Again, if you read uh, all the end there um, from verse 13 to 18, you'd read of a seductress who takes her guests down to the depths of Sheol. But let me simply read the first verse so that you understand. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Kohelet's not talking about females. He's talking about woman folly, like a capital F, like understanding like this is a personification of foolishness versus God's wisdom. He's taking this, and from the context, it seems best to interpret this as a personification of foolishness, woman folly. So let me read it again, and now think about this again, all right? And I find something more bitter than death, the woman, right, folly, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Again, don't, be, don't get distracted or taken by woman folly. She will destroy you. Run fast away from foolishness. He does understand that. He found that out. Foolishness will kill you. But where does this leave us? Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul sought repeatedly but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now I want you to track with me for a minute, because this again is a very difficult passage if we're just coming to it, again as a head scratcher. A lot of work went into this passage for me this week. In verse 27 and 28, he is saying that he has searched and added line by line like a meticulous accountant, trying to understand the meaning of life. But he can't do it. He came up short. He couldn't figure it all out. He has not found it out. And on top of that, he's just one man. He's just one guy trying to understand the meaning of life. One man who has searched for all things. His perspective then is super limited. He's one person. And he only represents, by the way, one half of all the people. The other half are women. All he knows is from a male perspective here. He can only tell us what he knows from this male perspective and try to help us understand. And even then, this search for meaningful answers seemed to come up empty. Now, some of you will say, I, 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 that's a tough one. I can't write, read that in that verse quite as simply as you just said it. I understand Kat Williams and I had a great conversation a couple weeks ago. She's like, man, let's talk through that whole passage again so I can understand how we got to where we got. That's good. Continue to work that way. That's why we put out those sermon worksheets for community groups, for your families, to work through those passages again, to ask questions of it. It's the right thing for us to do. He is not saying all of a sudden here, and I'm not, I'm not, the, the Hebrew is not particularly easy here, especially for me, but again, if you follow both his logic, and I think it follows the grammar and the syntax here to help us understand, he's not all of a sudden bringing up this idea that he can't find one woman in a thousand, or he can only find one man in a thousand men. Even at that, we'd be saying, find him doing what? Be being righteous or like he's alive? Like, 
what is this question about? Is he comparing? And he can't find any women in all of history. What is he talking about? Is he really comparing men and women that one are more righteous than the other here? The logic to do so would really be unbiblical and impossible according to this context. So, is there a helpful interpretation? Yes, I think so. Instead of pointing out something about the differences between men and women before God, I believe he is instead admitting that he is only one tiny male perspective in the pursuit of wisdom. And then even at that, he can only account from a male perspective. And so is this, it is this statement of humility and maybe even of bewilderment, saying, I've tried. I can't figure it out. I mean, think about what he's already said about history, right? Those things that are, that are beyond, deep, very deep, I can't get my arms around. This is yet another statement then of creatureliness, seeing ourselves before the Creator, showing us to be who we are. He can't get his hands around the scheme of things, the, around the reason or the explanation of the universe. He is left to the fact that God is God and that man is man, is creature. And so he ends in verse 29 with this, see this alone I found. I found something, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, my initial reading of this verse, I thought this was about right and wrong, uh, that God somehow has somehow made man righteous, but then man sought out wickedness. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all here. Consider what he's already talked about in these schemes. Instead, he's speaking of humanity as those who God has balanced and made fit for this world that he has designed. But man is unsatisfied with his position and wants to know, wants to discover the meaning behind life, the schemes. He wants to understand the deep workings of the cosmos, but he can't. He's not God. And this leads us back to a critical point. It takes us all the way back to verse 13, 14, 15, and 18. When you and I look at the world, it may seem easy or a light thing even to say that God has done some things wrong. That God has made ways crooked. That God has made things not add up properly. And I didn't get what I deserved. Or the people that are awful didn't get what they deserved. When you and I look at it, sometimes it's easy for us to say, I don't see how he keeps his promises. I'm supposed to trust him. I know all that. But inside, there's a massive frustration with the fact that the universe has not balanced out the way that we thought the Bible said it was supposed to. How could he be this way? And how could the righteous perish like the ungodly and the wicked prolong their lives? What in the world? In other words, seemingly, seemingly there are things that look very crooked. In the first half of chapter 7, we learn that escape uh, escapism is not the answer to the problem. Just being lighthearted and making merriment and just casting fate to the wind and who cares about anything, just live for the day. That's not the answer. We realize that. In this chapter, we realize, the second half, that wisdom and righteousness can't do it either. As, as, as means to an end, they will also fail us. Let me put this another way. Let, let's hit home. This hits home for me. You may not think that you are trying to do good works. You may not think that you so much rely on what wisdom and righteousness. 
to earn God's favor or get blessing. But be truthful now. I want you to think about this. How often are you disappointed or even angry when life doesn't seem to go the way that you think it ought to go? When your life looks crooked and you say, God, I've done all the right things. I go to church. I read my Bible. I've raised my kids the right way. I've done all these different things. And yet, look at what I've got. This way is crooked. Foul, God. It's, it's, it's rare that we're going to say that out loud, right? But is this, is this not the war inside of our hearts? The struggle, the disappointment, the anger, the, the, the pain and the, the suffering of why in the world can't I get what I'm supposed to get? And why do people that are so bad seem to rejoice and do well and have all the money and all the fame and all the whatever? Is this not what happens in our own hearts? How often do I silently think, haven't I done the right things, Lord? Aren't you supposed to bless the choices I've made? To answer the problem of the crooked path is not found in the right way of living. Hear me on this, guys. Listen. I don't know if you understand this, but this is what so many different philosophies of life are going to tell us. If you live this way, this is going to happen. Live this way and you'll have success. Live that way and you'll be happy. Don't do this and you'll avoid the problems of life. Be smart and live this, not the dumb way, and God will bless you. Guys, the way that we live will not bless us. The way that we live is not going to be somehow just constant blessing. Our righteousness and our wisdom will not make us happy. In fact, if you remember from 118, he told us what actual uh, wisdom will do. It'll bring vexation and sorrow. What are we expecting? The answer is not found in religion. Super righteousness, super wisdom. If I do all those things, I'm going to be good. I'm going to get what I deserve. It's not found in religion. It is solely, solely found in a person. Solely found in God alone through Jesus Christ. Lest we forget that, I, I just think we're going to be honest with ourselves. We live as though if we're doing the right things in our Christian life, we feel better. We do. And then if we're doing enough right things in the Christian life, we're like, why doesn't it turn out well for me? Where is our focus? What, what, what do we love most? I, I would just suggest that we love ourselves the most, not our God. Do you realize that what you're doing when you pursue wisdom and righteousness as the means of favor and blessing? As though you understand how the universe works? As though you can produce the right results by playing the rules out the right way? Guys, do you realize that's idolatry? That's what that is. To borrow, I want you to listen, to borrow a phrase from Ian Provon, he said this, the universe is not a predictable machine, but a personally governed complex space Wisdom is not magic. God is not an object to be manipulated. Nor does God's world belong to human beings. If God makes something crooked, it is beyond human power to make it straight. The point of our passage today is not that we'd sprinkle a little righteousness and a little wickedness into our lives. You've missed the point if that's what we think this is about. The point is what our Lord said when he explained the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
Guys, God is not pleased by our abundance of rule following. He is pleased by those who love him, who realize it doesn't matter how many rules they've followed, that won't earn them righteousness and somehow get them blessing. But if they will love and know and fear God, then we get everything. He is the key. He alone. Why else would Jesus say in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, on that day, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Super righteousness, right? Lots of righteousness, lots of good stuff, wisdom. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No. We don't want only an abundance of good works. We want to know God through Jesus Christ. What he has told us over and over again, to fear him and him alone. Yes, of course, a Christian life should be one that produces fruit, that obeys, that pursues wisdom and righteousness. Absolutely. But those things come out of a heart that loves God. We cannot, God, we, we, we cannot switch the second and the first great commandment. You understand? We don't start by doing good works and somehow then we're going to get the right life. The beginning is to know and love God. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. If you and I act wisely and live righteously and pour our whole lives into obeying every single one of God's commands and yet as we go through this life with misery and pain and disappointment and suffering and all things look like curses, what can we possibly say to all of this? Is God just or is he unjust? Has he made the path crooked? Is he not God? What are we to do with this? Brothers and sisters, do not be distracted by the crooked ways that our Father has designed for us. He is in full control. Our call is to fear him and love him in joy. This is what he has said over and over again, but in verse 18, he says it again. Those who will succeed eternally are those who fear God. So I'll end this way. Do not seek control of your life by being wise or by being righteous. Life will show you that you cannot control your outcomes. Recognize then your humanness and live joyfully in fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your great grace in Jesus Christ. I ask for your blessing for us, your people. Would you open the word to us? Would your spirit work it in us? Would you knead it and push it and, and pull us around and help us to repent of our sin? May we not desire control of our lives by doing wisdom and righteousness, but Lord, may we fear and know and love you. May we not worship as a way to do the second great commandment. May we worship because we love you. Please help us, Lord. Have mercy on us sinners. We're thankful for Jesus Christ who has paid for even this self-righteousness. May you be praised. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. 
For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.